You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. Welcome everyone and thank you for joining us today. It's great to be here with you, those of you that are joined with us in person and those of you that are with us online. Let's just take a minute and let's ask God to help uh, me and help uh, us open our hearts to him. Lord, I need your help because I'm a simple man and it's a complex world that we live in. Show us, Lord, how to live our faith in these strange times we find ourselves in. Show us the truth of what is going on in the world, and help us to respond to that in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I remember this story of this guy that I met. He was a warrant officer, and we were instructors together. He was a higher rank than me, uh, two ranks higher than me. And I remember saying to him, uh, when he was telling us this story about his uh, marriage life, he had been married six or seven times, I can't quite remember. I remember him telling us this. He had a bunch of different kids with a bunch of different women, and he was now with another woman, living with her, not married to her. And and I can remember saying to to him in my unpolitical uh, way, I said to him, wow, you think you should give something else a try? And he kind of looked at me and he said, and I can remember his response relatively well. He said, well, I figure if I do this enough times, eventually I'll get it right. And, and isn't this a, a good picture of humanity? As, as we look back through humanity, we see humans doing the same sorts of things over and over and over again. And they expect a different result. They think if I do the same thing enough times, eventually I'll get the result which I desire. Often we think, well, I know they did it that way in the past, and I know it didn't work out well, but this time's different because we've learned so much. We're different. We've changed. Mark Twain, the the well-known author, said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And isn't that true? If history tells us something, it's that people don't learn from history. And, and, and God shows us, and we see through God's word, and we see through history, that uh, humanity often works in cycles. It operates in cycles. Especially nations that at one point followed God and then turned away. The, 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 current, the, the typical cycle is four steps. God establishes a nation in security and peace when he responds to their faith, i.e. they cry out to him, God, be our God, show us the way, protect us, uh, deliver us from the hands of of those who want to hurt us, and we'll follow you. And God responds and secures a, a firm and peaceful nation. Then step two, a generation or two later, They start to turn away from the things of God, turn away from the faith of their ancestors, and they start to reject him. This is uh, called the rejection period. Then there is the uh, number three, the unraveling period. 
This is the period where the consequences of that rejection start to show themselves in morality, in economics, in uh, security, in uh, morals, in religion. And then the fourth step is the crisis period. This is the period where the people realize, they come to a crisis point and they realize, well, we are in a bad place. Maybe it's war, maybe it's famine, maybe it's economic uh, destruction. And they call out to God or they don't. And, And this will either start the cycle again or it oftentimes brings a nation to its end. We see it in the Old Testament in the book of Judges. Now, now we read the Bible and we read through the book of Judges. You probably read through it in about a month if you were on the Bible reading plan. And you look and it seems like, oh, maybe this is a hundred or so years. But did you know that the book of Judges is actually about a 450 year period? That's a long time, 450 years. We think of that, that's going back to the 15th, uh, to the 16th century. And over that time, there was 14 judges, people that God uh, brought up to lead the people. They were not kings, but they spoke on God's behalf. And and over that time, okay, there were varying different periods that this cycle took place. The people would be secure in God. They would follow him. Then they would uh, start to reject him. Then he would warn them. Then they would hit this crisis period. And there was literally uh, dozens of these times, or or there was a dozen of these times. 14 judges. The longest period of peace was 80 years of a judge. The shortest period of peace was six years. The longest crisis period for the people and the judges was uh, 40 years, and the shortest period was six years. Then after that period, there was the period of the kings. That was about a 400-year span. They went through this cycle eight times, eventually leading to them being destroyed and taken into captivity by Babylon, in which then Ezra and Nehemiah, 70 years later, came back on behalf of God and started to rebuild the nation again. But it's not only in the Old Testament we see it. We see it in Protestant history. What do I mean by Protestant history? I mean, if we go back 500 years in Western culture, we see it. Periods of prosperity, when they follow God, periods of crisis. The first crisis we can look back was the War of Roses. That was a civil war in England in the late 15th century. Then that led to, that was a crisis which led to a great awakening, a period of Protestant Reformation. This is what we know of as the Reformation with Martin Luther, where they came out of the the Catholic religious system and freedom of religion was given to all and the Bible was made available for for common people like us to read and uh, the, the priesthood of all the believers was given, whereas we're all equal, none is above another, that we all have a place in God's kingdom. That led to another crisis point in the Armada, the Spanish Armada period of great war in the late 16th century, which then led to, again, a calling out, and men and women got on their hands and knees and cried out to God, and the Puritan awakening happened in the early 17th century, 1621, over a period of 25 years which then led to a, another crisis point, which was the, called the Glorious Revolution. And again, another civil war in England. 
which then the people cried out to God again, and the Great Awakening in the 18th century, 1727 started with George Whitfield and, and John Wesley and, and Jonathan Edwards. And then again, it declined and decayed, and that brought about the American Revolution in the last half of the 18th century. And, and then the people cried out to God again, and the Second Great Awakening happened in 1822. And then again, another declining, and the Civil War happened. And then again, another crying out to God. And the Third Great Awakening started in 1886. And then we know the Great Depression and World War II. And the cycle started again. And the cycle was then this generation, and I've told you this story before, came up out of the depression and the war and they, re, they built a society more successful than any society in the history of the world. And then the 60s came and there was that turning away, that rejection, that period where we said, we don't want God, we don't want morality, we don't want sexuality, we don't want authority, we want to do things our way. And then there was the generation born into that, my generation, called the latchkey generation. And we got that term because a lot of us were raised by single parents, meaning we came home with a key and we let ourselves in because we were raised by a single parent who had to work. And then we've been seeing that sort of, it's called the unraveling over the 80s, 90s, and then we have started to see this crisis period in which we saw, starting back, they say, in about 2006 with the financial crisis and then uh, the wars in the Middle East and, and now the chaos that we see going across the West. And, and one of the things we see in crisis points, in crisis periods, and that's what we're in, ladies and gentlemen, we need not kid ourselves that, that there is just an easy way out of what we see happening in our society. It's a crisis point. It's a point marked by little middle ground, meaning two opposing sides in, a, in their own culture that are so drastically divided, they almost hate each other. Where there is a period where there's very little place to agree upon, the very little middle ground, very little ability to get along with those who have differing views of you. We see it in, in politics. We, we see it in race. We see it in economics. We see it all over our society. It's a crisis point. That's what was happening in Daniel's time, a crisis point. Uh, the book of Daniel was written in a crisis time. And, and, and we are in the same sort of crisis time, different but the same. And what we can learn from these three men is, is what we can take and then apply to our lives as we live through this crisis time. So turn with me if you, if you have your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3 and let's just look at the situation and let's look at how the men responded in faith. Chapter 3 verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judge and judges and the magistrates, and all the rulers of all the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar that he had set up. Go down to verse 4. 
A herald loudly proclaimed to every nation in every language, you are commanded. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zethra, the lyre, the harp, the drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, all the people, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zethra, the lyre, the harp, and every kind of music, every people of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This is a crisis period for the Jews. And as I said, this happens. They are in a period of no ability to compromise, a period of absolute authority. In this case, it's a man. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. He's a king. He, he doesn't just rule a nation. He rules an empire, an empire he has taken by force. There is no middle ground with him. Sometimes it's individuals, sometimes it's political parties, but crisis points usually uh, stem around an authority that says, I am the be-all, end-all, and you will listen to me, and if you don't, there will be serious problems. The Israelites had kind of gotten themselves into this, as we usually do. Uh, they had had a period about 40 years before when they had a king who followed God. His, his name was Josiah. And he ruled and, and, and he loved the Lord. He did the best that he could. He was by no means a perfect king. But then he died. And the next four kings, they chose sin over God. They chose to reject the God of their ancestors and, and go after the sins and pleasures of the world. They gave their hearts over to that which was wicked and they rejected the Lord their God. And God warned them again and again and again. We see this through the prophet Jeremiah, his warnings, his beckonings, his calling them back, but they would not listen. And so God allowed them to reap what they sowed. And that's a hard thing for us to think in reality. As Canadians living in 2021, that... God would allow us to reap what we sow. Is that a real biblical thing, Ben? Well, yes, it is. Psalm 106, verse 10, it's a, it's a psalm about the Israelites when they were in the wilderness following Moses. And, and it speaks of their rejection of God and what God allows them or allows to happen to them. Verse 10. It says, he saved them from the hand that hated them. He redeemed them from the hand of their enemy. The waters covered the foes. Not one of them remained. When they believed, then they believed his promises and sang his praise. Yet they soon forgot the work and failed to wait for his counsel. They craved intensely in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. So he granted their request but sent a wasting disease upon them. The New Testament talks about the same sort of thing. Romans chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says this, Therefore God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. Yes, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is also holy Jesus, 
who is jealous for his church and will by no means share his glory with another. And the same kind, merciful God who is patient in bringing judgment, patient wanting everyone to come to him, has a tipping point, has a point where he says enough is enough. And he, in a sense, steps back and allows a nation to reap what it has asked for. That's happening right in this situation in Daniel's life. Uh, Daniel, unfortunately, and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are, are feeling the consequences of their parents' sin. They were just children, young men born into this, and they were brought as children, uh, young men, into captivity. They didn't reject the Lord themselves. In fact, they were part of the remnant, and there's always a remnant No matter what a nation does, no matter what a society does, there was always a remnant of people who choose to follow God regardless of what is happening around them. And sometimes it might feel like you're alone, like there's really not that many people who really seek the Lord, who really desire to live by his ways, who want to do more than just pay God lip service, but actually want to follow him in word and in deed and in truth. Well, know that you're not alone, that God always preserves a remnant. The prophet Isaiah, 400 years before this, before the story of Daniel, went through the same kind of thing. It was a period of crisis. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18, he's he's essentially depressed, and he says, there's nobody left, I'm it. And God says to him, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Isaiah lived through a crisis point in the 8th century BC when a foreign queen uh, married King Ahab and brought in all sorts of false gods and, and actually in following Yahweh became illegal and she hunted down the priests that had so valiantly served God before. And this was only a hundred years after Israel was at its pinnacle, when David and Solomon uh, led the nation. And now it finds itself in a very different place. And fast forward 400 years to the text. And now the nation is no more. God has it allowed it to be completely overwhelmed, to reap the consequences of its sin. And these Jews, this remnant, live scattered throughout the Babylonian empire. And this crazy man, this crazy king named Nebuchadnezzar rules. And he demands ultimate authority. He, devi- he establishes himself as the supreme ruler. Not only is he God, but he is the holder of truth. And he will not share his glory, so-called, with anyone else. And we face something similar, although very different. It is not one person who demands ultimate allegiance, but we see it in our news. We see it spewing out of the news ads that we read in the day and the night. It seems like the, the nation that we had built is burning almost. And we see this radical divide. And we ask ourselves, what's going on here? And I want us to understand the times in which we live. Because if we can't understand it, then we can't respond to it. And and there is a, a, a way of thinking that is permeating our society. It's called critical 
theory. And it's important that we understand this because it will answer a lot of your questions. It's, it's a theory, critical theory, that emerged from the Marxist tradition. By a, it was developed in the uh, late 19th century by a group of sociologists from Germany at the University of Frankfurt in Germany who referred to themselves as the Frankfurt School. You would have heard this name, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. They were the two of the, the prominent people. They designed what became known as the Communist Manifesto. This, comes, this critical way of thinking comes from that thought process. This led people like Leonard Trotsky and Joseph Stalin, who you may have heard of, to bring the Soviet revolution in the early 19th century, 20th century in Russia, which became known as the USSR, which is the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic, that throughout 30 years killed an estimated 40 to 60 million of their own people through famine and through imprisonments. This brought about the great revolution in China in which Mao uh, leapt forward with his great four-year leap, he called it, which killed an estimated 45 million of his own people through, again, starvation and imprisonment and execution. This led about, this way of thinking led to the uh, North Korean revolution and the Cuban revolution and the revolution in Venezuela. It's a very dangerous way of thinking. And now you might say, wait a sec. We're not communists here in Canada. And you're right, we're not communists. But there is a way of thinking that is starting to bubble to the surface which will lead down those roads if it is not confronted. We are no Marxists that we would think of. And yet, for the last 50 or so years, this has been the way of thinking that has been at the forefront of many major universities in many different ways, not always in the same way. And it's not always something that is right in your face. It's subtle. Some of you might wonder why you raised children in the church and they went off to a university and they got a degree and they came back atheists with a lot of weird ideas. Where did they develop this from? Well, this way of thinking first in, a, in the West came into the universities and now it dominates the university's faculty. Let me give you a few ways that you might see it rearing its head in this crisis time that we live in. It comes from the premise, so this is the premise of, of all the different ways, that almost all traditional views are bad and therefore need to be torn down. Meaning if it's traditional and it's old, it's not good and therefore it needs to be torn down. We see it in critical economic theory. Meaning that people are inherently greedy, and therefore, the government needs to control the resources and the wealth of a nation in order to distribute it equally amongst the people. That's why we see in the West the government getting bigger and bigger and bigger, right? And that why every year we see more and more money being given by the government to people. So much so that the people become dependent on the government and therefore the government must grow and grow and grow. But in order to feed and pay for all of these things, then the government must take over more. I often hear now, and it's a weird thing to hear, 
businesses, business owners, uh, supervisors saying, I can't find employees. Nobody wants to work anymore. People just say it's easier to stay home and collect money from the government than it is to go out and get a job. That's the, the start of this road in critical economic theory. And meaning that people are greedy and therefore a few people at the top need to control the wealth in order to distribute it amongst the people. Karl Marx, is, he had a ten, top 10 list of things that need to happen. His top three things were the abolition uh, of private property and land, meaning the government takes it, nobody owns anything. The heavy and progressive and graduated income tax, meaning the more you have, the more we take. And the abolition of all rights of inheritance, meaning nobody leaves anything to their family, the government takes it all and redistributes it. And it's starting to, it's the most popular actually, philosophy amongst young people, amongst millennials and down. Meaning this is the viewpoint which way they think is the best way forward. That less of capitalism, and now hear me, capitalism has become very corrupt over the last 20 or 30 years in which operating in a way that it never was intended to operate. And this is the response from the younger people who say, I can't buy a house, I can't afford to raise a family, I can't do anything, and therefore somebody has to take control and redistribute the wealth. We see it in something called critical gender theory. And, and it's morphed over the last 60 or 70 years. First, there was this idea of feminism. That meant women are equal in value and therefore should have equal rights and be protected. Good things. The Bible was the first to step forward and say women are equal in value and therefore need to be protected and therefore have the right to have the same opportunities that men do. Good things. But then it changed to whereas the thinking is uh, men, women don't need men. And in fact, women can do anything men can do and men, women can do it better in some circles. And then it morphed again into it's no longer marriage between a man and a woman. It's now fine for marriage between a man and a man or marriage between a woman and a woman or marriage between a woman and multiple men is now becoming popular. And then it's morphed again to where gender is no longer defined at birth. You can now choose if you're a man or a woman. You can now choose if you're both a man or a woman or if you're not either of them. It's now become in a lot of circles that the nuclear family, meaning a man and a woman with a heterosexual man and a woman are the problem with society. And that if you disagree, you are a sexist, transphobic, heterosexual, traditional Christian, and you're speaking from a place of privilege. There is hostility if you speak out of against it. I was reaching, reading an article in the Washington Post, which is a, a fairly liberal, very large U.S. Uh, newspaper, and they were talking about this past year that they estimate, experts estimate that women's sports will be completely taken over by men who identify as women in the next 10 years. And that the Olympics are now uh, trying to figure out if they are going to allow men to compete as women because they identify that. And they say if that happens, 
all of the, the rights or all of the um, progress that, femi- that women's liberation movements had made back in the 50s and 60s and 70s will be erased and that women will no longer have their own sport. It's progressive. And I was reading this article and there was many prestigious women that were stepping forth, Olympic athletes, um, women who were early on in the feminist women's rights movements, and they were saying, this is wrong and, and transgender people need to have a separate uh, category for themselves. And the transgender movement was saying, no, you're just, homo- you're just a homophobic, you're just... Um, transphobic person. See, now the hatred is, is so real that if anyone argues, you're the enemy. We see it in some groups uh, that adhere to critical climate theory. What is that? It, it, it's this uh, progressive movement. And, and now hear me, I'm a person who believes you need to look after the environment. It's God's world. We need to care for it. But it's this movement that says anything traditional in, in transportation and in heating and in eating needs to be torn down. It's no good for the government. It's no good for the world. Therefore, it needs to be replaced and the government needs to enforce it. And if you don't agree with it, well, you're just a conspiracy theorist and you're not good for the world. There's critical immigration theory or border theory as some call it, meaning there should be no borders and anyone should be able to walk into any country and be allowed to be looked after by that government. There's critical religious theory which says religion is all bad and especially Christianity as as a part of the oppression of minority groups in the West. And if you disagree with that, you're speaking from a Christian privilege, meaning you were born into this country and you're a part of the problem and therefore you just need to be quiet. That's why it's now become illegal for me, okay, because they believe that the government, if religious leaders anyway get into the way of this, that the government should clamp down. That's why it's illegal for me now if a young person comes and says, I'm struggling and I feel like, say they're a boy, and I feel like I'm a girl, If I say to them, actually the Bible would say you're not a girl, you're a boy, and and that this is sin, I can be charged with a hate crime. That's that's the way we're going. There's critical uh, medical theory, or it has many different definitions, but in in essence it means that abortion is a right, assisted suicide is a right, and if you get in the way with that, you're inhibiting somebody's freedom and you're oppressing them. And then, of course, there is the one that is really in the news right now. It's called critical race theory. That means, and and I'm going to put some links uh, at the bottom of this sermon that you can hear a man who really talks about as well. His name is uh, Vadi Vudi. Vadi Bakum, and he's an African-American pastor, and he is the president of the theological school in South Africa right now, and he speaks about it really well, against it. And, And he says in one of the overarching points of critical race theory is this, that everything is racist, that racism is normal, and therefore everything is racist. And meaning if you're a white person and you're a that you are, in fact, a part of the problem, whether you recognize you are or not. Because you are white, born into this nation, born into the West, you live from a point of privilege. And therefore, you are a part of the reason why minority groups are oppressed. That's why we see a lot of kneeling at football games and at 
at NBA games. What is the kneeling? It's saying, I don't support the flag. I don't support the nation. Why? Because they're saying it's racist. That's what we see behind the defund the police movement, right? And, and by no means do we think that any sort of things done by the police, like the stuff that happened last year, are right in those specific incidences. But what the defund the police movement, which is a part of critical race theory, says that all police are racist and the whole thing needs to be torn down. That's why the prime minister of our nation got up last June and said, the RCMP is systematically or systemically racist. Do you understand what systemically means? It means that the leader of our nation was saying the largest police force in our nation, all through it, is racist. It's racist to its core. It's dangerous talk. It's radical talk. It's what you see in the news. But is that what the Bible says? Is that what it says? Does the Bible say that specific races are the problem? Or does the Bible say something else? Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Mark 7, 21 says, therefore from within, out of the heart of a man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. See, the Bible and and critical race theory are two very opposing things. The Bible says no skin color, no gender makes a person evil. No, it's the sinful heart of a person that makes them evil. And I've seen white people do some pretty evil stuff. And I've seen people of color do some pretty evil stuff. And I am convinced that it is the heart of a man or a woman that is evil, not the skin color. And one of the cardinal indicators we can know we're at a crisis point is because we've lost the ability to compromise. Look at, go back to our text and look at it right there. Verse eight. Some of the Chaldeans, so there's this, there's this law been made. You can only worship this statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Not allowed to do any, any other worship. If you don't do it, you're gonna die, okay? So it says, verse eight, some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of this horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the golden statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the furnace of burning, blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods. They do not worship the golden statue that you have set up. See what's going on here? There's so much hatred towards the Jews, so much inability to to compromise or to, to look at another person who has a differing view of them as valuable that these people are coming forward now, we're gonna get these Jews. There's this group of people, King, these Jews, and they are evil. They are against you, and we need to cancel them. Are there problems in our society? Yeah, there's problems in our society. 
There's economic problems. There's environmental problems. There's racial problems. And they need to be addressed. But they need to be addressed through calm, respectful, proactive plans that compromise and listen to the other side and look to have dialogue. And we have this thing called cancel culture. You may have heard it. You may have seen it happening in the news. And what it means is if you don't agree with us, whichever side uh, is talking, if you don't agree with us, we will cancel you meaning you won't get into our school or you won't get your doctorate or or you will lose your ability to speak on social media or uh, you will be attacked sometimes with violence. It's cancel culture. That's where we are. That's the atmosphere we find ourselves in at this crisis point in the West. And And I even see it, this is the first time I've spoken on it, in vaccines, in in the way that people are handling vaccines. And I've been careful not to give my opinion because I think that's, a, um, that's something that each person should choose for themselves because they have the right as Canadian citizens to choose that for themselves and they should make a research decision. But let me tell you, I haven't seen so much aggression on some sides, on, on some factions of both sides as I've seen around vaccines. Uh, and I get it, as side of the pastor, it's, it's a common thing people talk about from both sides. Uh, those who, who think the vaccine is, is something, uh, you know, an evil plan that's uh, developed to poison, you know, by Bill Gates or by the Antichrist, by those on this side who say, if you take it, you're silly and you're, and you're dumb and you're going to hell. Or, or, or those on the other side who, who say, if you don't take it, you're actually a part of the problem and you're actually killing people and you should have to take it. Right? There's, there's such aggression and unwillingness to even hear the, person, the other side out around vaccines. And as I talk to people, I see this issue in and of itself is tearing families apart, it is tearing friendships apart, is breaking the unity amongst fellow Christians. And it's dangerous. As I talk to some people and they're like, I don't want to phone my family anymore because I'm just afraid, and, and I'm, it's both sides, I'm just afraid they're going to yell at me for not agreeing with them on whichever position they're taking. And I hear it amongst Christians. I don't want to talk to that Christian anymore because I'm afraid they're going to hassle me about my view on vaccines. But that's not the way Christ calls us to be, is it? Not a people who look to the other person as the enemy or part of the problem. And it's not just in that, it's in race and it's in gender and it's even in faith. And and when you're at a point where you're unwilling to look at evidence or what the Bible says about something, but you're at such a place where, no, this is the right and this is the only way and and it's not a major biblical issue, uh, but this is the way I believe and if you're not willing to hear me, you're a part of the problem then you know you're at a not very good place. And we're going to see this escalate over the next five or ten years. There's some historians uh, who wrote a book. It's, it's become quite a well-known book. It's called The Fourth Turning. They're, it's not a Christian book. I highly recommend it, though, uh, by authors, historians William uh, Strauss and Neil Howe. 
And they talk about and they lay out the uh, historical um, cycle, same sort of thing we see in the Bible. And they say that this fourth phase of this current cycle that we're in will uh, reach its crisis point around 2025. That is when the baby boomers are no longer the main voting power and are no longer the main institutional power. And that's the tipping point when the millennials will now become those who hold the power. And so the question is, how do we respond as Christians? How do we respond in such a a divided society now? Well, I think we respond in the same way that these three men do. Look at verse 13. Then a furious rage, in the furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave the orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve the gods or worship the golden statue that we have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zethra, the lyre, the harp, the drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I have made. Okay? I just want to pause there for a sec. I think Nebuchadnezzar is not a, a moron. He knows that this statue is not God. But this is about conforming. He wants them to conform. It's not about who's right. It's about conforming to what he says is right. And I'll continue on. But if you don't worship, you will immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And, and who, is not, who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, We don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of the blazing fire. And and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden statue you have set up. How do we respond? Well, we remember the four C's. The four C's. Uh, Number one. Be cordial in dialogue. Be cordial in dialogue. You notice they're not getting all worked up and they're not getting angry. They're quite respectful. These are three officials in the kingdom. They actually work for the king. And yet they're cordial. And and often we can just want to lash back. But we can't as Christians. We're called to be cordial. Titus chapter 3 verse 2 says, Speak evil to no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle and show perfect courtesy towards all people. The second C, be convictional. Be convictional. That means know what you believe and stand for it. Notice these men know what they believe. They're raised in a foreign kingdom, a foreign empire, yet they know what God wants of them. Be convictional in what you believe. And and you want to live at peace with people, but you also don't want to do what you know God wants opposes. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 26 says, in the fear of the Lord, one is strong in confidence and his children will have a refuge. See, in the fear of the Lord, when you fear the Lord first, and Jesus said that, don't fear those who can throw your, who can kill your body, but fear the one first who can kill the body and throw your soul into hell. When you fear the Lord more than men, it gives you a confidence 
And we are to be convicted of that confidence in what we believe, as these men are, willing to die for what they believe. And, and number three, think critically about what the Bible says. That's the only critical thinking I really adhere to, critical biblical thinking. And, and these men are uh, sifting everything they're being taken, they're being told according to what God says. They're not just going through the world, not just not thinking about what God wants. They're, they're working for the kingdom and evil, uh, non-Jewish kingdom, they're working for that kingdom and yet there are some things they won't do. They're thinking critically about what the Bible says and that's what we need to be doing, ladies and gentlemen, in all areas, in economics, in race, in, in environment, in, in everything, thinking about what does the Bible say? And how do I best live this out in all of these areas that I might be passionate about? And the fourth C, be confident in God. Be cordial in dialect. Be convictional in beliefs. Be critical in your thinking about what the Bible says. And be confident in God. And they are confident in God. They're so confident and they, they, they lay it out there and say, our God has the power. He has the power, King. But even if he doesn't save us, we're still not going to do what you say. Be confident in God. Might there be consequences for standing up to that which is wrong? Yes, there might be. Might some of us have to pay for those, pay those consequences in the coming years? Yes, we may. But we want to do it in a way that honors God. And doesn't lower ourselves into the levels that our society is lowering itself into. How does Nebuchadnezzar respond? Verse 19. He was filled with rage. The expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave the order to heat up the furnace seven times more than customary. He commanded some of the best soldiers in the army to tie up the three and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men... In their trou- throw these men in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and all other clothings were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Since the king's command was so urgent, the furnace was extremely hot. The raging flame killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And those three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, found bound, fell bound into the blazing furnace. And of course, we know the rest of the story. God saved them. And there's going to be some challenging days in our nation's future. In the West, meaning, meaning that which was once Protestant, the U.S., Britain, Canada, some of the European countries, there are going to be some challenging days in the future. It isn't just going to get better overnight. But we, men and women of all ages, have the opportunity to magnify Christ. And what does history tell us? That every time there has been a crisis, if his people will get down on their hands and knees and call out to him and look to him as the answer, he will bring revival. He will bring healing to the nation. But if we don't, then sometimes he will allow that nation to reap what it sows. But I am confident in hope that our God isn't done with us yet and that we can see 
a fourth great revival. Let's pray. Lord, being a parent in these times, it can be scary for me. And I can see where we're going. But Lord, let me not be full of fear. Let me not turn away in desperation from you. Let me not look to the methods of man, either on the right or on the left, but look to you, the one true authority, the one true God, the one true hope of our nation. Lord, would you revive us? Would you unite us? Lord, we know the only hope for our nation is not more money, is not more rules, but it's for men and women's hearts to be changed, for you to save them, for you to change them, for you to conform their minds. Lord, we ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.